This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buda. In this episode, we'll be covering... The Dream of a Ridiculous Man by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This story was originally published in 1877. We're reading the English translation by Richard Prevere and Larissa Volokonsky. This originally came out in 1997. This episode was commissioned by one of our really awesome and really generous Patreon supporters, and we want to say a huge thank you for that. Uh, We've been wanting to do some Dostoevsky for a long time, have said so on the air, and we're so grateful that someone someone really heard us and uh, grateful for the support. So thank you so much. Yeah, I'm not really familiar with Dostoevsky's short fiction, so I'm really glad to have this edition that we have the story in, um, but also to be able to have read this story. So thank you so much. This story is a novella, so this episode will be in two parts. Our first episode, this one, is our recap. Next time will be the discussion. So, Glenn, why don't we get right to it? Well, this story is very nicely divided into five chapters, so I'm going to just try to recap each chapter in a chunk, and then we can pause and digest them. I really appreciate when stories do that, especially novellas. (laughs) But to make sure that we give you a sense of the language and narrative style of the story, I'm just going to read the opening paragraph right now. I am a ridiculous man. They call me mad now. That would be a step up in rank if I did not still remain as ridiculous to them as before. But now I'm no longer angry. Now they are all dear to me, and even when they laugh at me, then too they are even somehow especially dear to me. I would laugh with them, not really at myself, but for love of them, if it weren't so sad for me to look at them. Sad because they don't know the truth, and I do know the truth. Ah, how hard it is to be the only one who knows the truth! But they won't understand that. No, they won't understand it. And... The narrator is going to go on like this for quite a while. He's not going to uh, uh, define his term for us or really give us much indication of what he's talking about. But now he tells us a bit about his life. And through these details, one important thing that we discern is that this story is more or less contemporary to its writing. So it's you know, more or less set in the 1870s. The narrator lives in St. Petersburg. He's attended university. He also doesn't seem to do any kind of uh, work for a living. But all his education has ever taught him is just how ridiculous he is. Uh, indeed, he is so ridiculous that he determines to kill himself with a revolver. He's even acquired the revolver and loaded it, but then has kind of forgotten about it because it makes no difference. And this phrase, uh, it makes no difference, is something of a refrain for the narrator. Even when he's out drinking with some friends, for example, he just sits quietly with them while they banter and argue with each other, except once he chimes in to tell them that it makes no difference. And The point that the narrator is driving at is that he feels detached from the world, and he gives us some examples of this. His living situation is not great. He's got an apartment that he rents, and it's clearly a cheap apartment. 
One of his neighbors in the house is disruptive. Uh, he likes to host card playing parties at night that sometimes turn violent and are always loud. But the narrator doesn't care. Makes no difference to him because he isn't sleeping anyway. All night, he just sits in a chair, not even thinking, and only falling asleep once the dawn arrives. And then, during the day, he reads. Walking home one night, he encounters a little girl on the street. She begs him to help her with something that has happened in her home. Someone's fallen ill or been hurt or something like that. But he doesn't help her. And when he returns home, he checks on his revolver and he determines to kill himself this very night. But he doesn't. And he says that the reason is this encounter with the girl on the street, which he's going to continue to think about in the next chapter. This is one really seriously depressed fellow, right? He displays uh, what I think we'd call now imposter syndrome, and he masks it in a kind of despair that he really hopes he can inflict upon other people. He kind of wants other people to despair as well, to adapt to that notion that it makes no difference. You know, if if everyone were to wake up and realize that nothing they were doing really mattered, That would be good for our narrator, but then it also wouldn't be good because then he wouldn't be able to feel so isolated and alienated and alone in his despair, which he seems to enjoy on some minor level. He's also got, as you pointed out, Glenn, these uh, uh, kind of a heavy case of suicidal ideation and an extreme case of selfishness, as we see in this instance with the little girl who needs help. And he refuses to offer her any sort of comfort or protection. We also see this uh, with the family that lives in the rooms with him and this wild captain. He doesn't offer them any sort of uh, protection from the captain either. And all this guy wants is to be left alone. But I think what Dostoevsky really nails here is the sense that what the narrator really wants is for people to know that the narrator wants to be left alone. So there's this sense that we get in this you know, opening description of the narrator in this first chapter, uh, the sense that he enjoys the attention that he gets from having this persona, maybe even mildly enjoys what he gets from the way others interact with his condition. And, and this is demonstrated by the way that the narrator will just like bump into people in the street while he's walking around. And I think this is all pretty true to form for this kind of really depressive episode, this this cry for attention and this feeling of alienation all kind of mishmashed into, into one situation. Oh, yeah. I think Dostoevsky has has nailed uh, a huge chunk of, of this experience. Uh, certainly this experience of you know being out at the bar with your friends and not enjoying it. And in fact, finding it kind of insufferable, even though these are your friends. And uh, a month ago, this is what you love to do on a Saturday night or whatever. And you, you know, there's a part of you that wants to enjoy being there, but it, that it's just not on for you. And then, yeah, shuffling home, not, not, caring about anything, not being able to do things that bring you joy, but also not being able to sleep very well, and so on. Dostoevsky really describes, I think, some of the classic symptoms of depression without using that word really at all. It's it's just really, it's a really vivid description. 
It really is. And and it, it continues on. I mean, there are a few more things I want to point out in, the, in this first chapter. I guess they kind of all fall under this umbrella of depression. But the first thing I want to point out is the way that the narrator thinks about light. And so I'm going to read a passage that describes the streets of St. Petersburg after a rainstorm. And if you have the Modern Library edition of The Eternal Husband and Other Stories, you can find this on page 301. It was a gloomy evening, as gloomy as could be. I was returning home then, between 10 and 11 o'clock, and I remember I precisely thought that there could not be a gloomier time, even in the physical respect. Rain had poured down all day. And it was the coldest and gloomiest rain, even some sort of menacing rain. I remember that with an obvious hostility to people. And now between 10 and 11, it suddenly stopped and a terrible dampness set in, damper and colder than when it was raining. And a sort of steam rose from everything, from every stone in the street and from every alleyway. If you looked far into its depths from the street. I suddenly imagined that if the gaslights went out everywhere, it would be more cheerful. And that with the gaslights, it was sadder for the heart because they threw light on it all. And I, I, you know, Glenn, I think you in particular really loved this description. It is an amazing description and, and a projection of the narrator's emotional state of mind onto the, to the world. Yeah, it's a beautiful bit of, of prose writing here and just an extraordinarily evocative description that just transports me to this time and place. It makes me, you know, wish that I could physically do that. You know, if maybe I had a TARDIS or something, this, this would be something <laughs> I would want to go check out. You know, it hits all the senses as well. So just great descriptive writing on on that sort of technical level there for sure. But yeah, I also love how this becomes kind of a, a synecdoche for his his depression that he's he's suffering from all these even these feelings that he has about the rain kind of go through these these range of of feelings or or sometimes lack of feelings that we associate with depression uh, i really love this bit about the gaslights and in part because it gives us this great image of the gaslights and uh you know look i like steampunk like everybody else does i guess right <laughs> so just the the idea of gaslights has got this kind of cool uh, ethos to it for me and that's kind of fun but the idea that Everything would be better if they go out, which he talks about in terms of this particular moment, but it really stands in for what he's saying is, I think that the world would be better for me if everyone were gone. Yeah, this bit about the light making things worse, especially when combined with the narrator's notion that seeing a star in the distance is the thing that gives him the idea to end his life that very night you know, demonstrates that there's some kind of connection. I think that you, you pointed out there, Glenn, between the idea that light illuminates nothing. It shows us nothing or what it shows us is worse than if it showed us nothing. And basically the narrator feels as though he sees through the simple, you know, mechanics of consciousness or reality or being and the universe. And he knows that it makes no difference as he puts it. It's that feeling that, you know, even though he's depressed and, and you see this in the conversation with his friends as well, that what they're talking about doesn't matter. They don't even believe what they're talking about. And so it's the seeing through that is exhausting to the narrator. You know, the light shining is too 
bright. It's showing too much. The last thing I want to emphasize here is all this stuff about the girl, uh, you know, and the narrator being suicidal and knowing he's ridiculous. The first thing I want to say here is this has all taken place in the past. So this story is being told from a perspective of somebody who has uh, trans been transformed somehow into a mindset that recognizes the need uh, for love and mercy, maybe even for pitying others. So even from the beginning of the story, we know that the narrator is going to go through a transformative ex experience. We suspect it has something to do with this girl, but I think we'll have to tease out in our discussion just what this transformation has to do with this encounter with this girl that he basically is very cruel to before he decides he's going to kill himself. And and we left off kind of in the the middle of his thoughts about this girl, and so you know, as promised, the the narrator opens up chapter two by by thinking some more about this little girl on the street, and he tells us that she saved his life, that he did not kill himself that night because of this incident, this encounter with her, and how this happened is simply that. Although he, he did not help her, uh, in fact, he says now that he shouted at her to go away, he nonetheless found that he pitied her and that he, he actually did want to help her. And even during this encounter, he realized that he was feeling this way, and he wondered whether someone who plans to kill himself should care about whatever is going on with other people. Uh, maybe to put it another way, perhaps if he still cares about what is going on with other people, then maybe he shouldn't kill himself. And he has other questions as well, other worries now as well. He gets into his head the notion that maybe the existence of the world is actually linked to his consciousness and that if he kills himself, then he would be killing everyone else too. He also wonders how he would feel if he'd grown up on the moon or on Mars and done something horrible there and then moved to the earth and looked up to see his former home in the sky and he feels like he has to answer these questions before he can kill himself now. And then something happens that night. He, he falls asleep in his chair instead of staying awake all night. It's been a long time since that's happened. And he has a dream. And that dream, of course, is the dream of the story's title and will occupy much of the rest of the story when we pick up with chapter three. The narrator moves from a posture, maybe is the right word, of despair to solipsism in this chapter. Though it's not a, a complete solipsism, it's a move that awakens the narrator to certain moral realities, I think. And sol solipsism is the idea that like your mind is the only mind that exists. Uh, so the world and other people are products of our own mind. In any event, the narrator is beginning to get the idea that one way to change the world is to change our perception of the world. And this is an idea that is repeated, I think, throughout Dostoevsky's works, or at least the works that I've read. And it is true to some degree that while the world does not depend upon our perception of it, which is where the narrator is you know, in this chapter, our ability to find fulfillment or purpose in the actions we take in the world do depend in part on our perception of what the world is and how we can impact it. And so what's happening here is that our narrator is right on the edge of taking a journey that will lead him to take responsibility for his moral failing 
in caring for that girl when she needed him. But he's still stuck in solipsism. And so I think that that's part of what we're seeing here is Dostoevsky through this narrator taking us through a journey of moral awakening. Yeah, he still clearly has some some work to do here. But again, I think Dostoevsky is nailing the trajectory of of de- depression here. I think often the advice that you'll get from a, a mental health professional, just to be clear, that's not either of us and we are not dispensing medical advice in, in any way, uh, but is that when you're feeling that isolated, when your depression is taking the form in the shape that it is taking here for this narrator, that something that might help you out is to actually have something to be invested in, something to care for. And so things like get some houseplants that require you to water them, or um, you know, if you have pets, make sure you're caring for them and that, that sort of thing. I mean, all of these are, are things that can help us to uh, participate in the world again, the caring about other people and, and feeling like other people, or, or I guess, you know, in the case of plants, other living things uh, depend on us. And Dostoevsky is giving us exactly and 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 kind of inciting incident here, where this is is kind of a, a jolt to this narrator who is clearly suffering from some pretty deep depression, uh, to realize that although is feeling isolated in the world, actually is not. Right, and that whether or not there are people that directly depend on him. Because he's participating in humanity by living in a city, he could be available to help people that could come up to him on on the street, as happens with this little girl. I feel really bad for the woman who lives in the rooms with him. I mean, like, and her kids. Uh, maybe we'll pick up, you know, some of that in our in our discussion. Um, there's a, there's more I want to talk about in this chapter, though. There's this bit about consciousness. I think, and whether or not it is the product of our environment. In other words, whether our maybe moral consciousness is a product of our environment and whether that environment is to blame for our behavior and actions or whether our consciousness is something we are responsible for as a product of of being. You know, what the narrator is thinking about here, and I'm, I'm thinking about this whether or not the narrator would live, had done something shameful on on the moon. Uh, You know, what the narrator is thinking about here when he is thinking about doing something shameful on the moon or Mars is wondering whether or not moral action is absolute and universal. He's thinking about whether or not guilt or our consciences are formed based on the contingencies of, of place and time. And if we were to somehow escape those contingencies and we're in a place with different ethical norms, we'd be able to rid ourselves of our senses of guilt and shame around our bad behavior. I think this is kind of a great thought experiment. You know, it's a, it's a solid question. I think worth asking, maybe worth staying up one or two nights over the course <laughs> of a lifetime. Uh, but in the narrator's case in this moment, this is especially worth pondering as he just let a child suffer so that he could go home and in his solipsistic frame of mind, snuff out the entire universe. Like he couldn't have just waited an extra two hours and done one good thing first. 
And these types of thoughts, these types of questions are going to show up then in the dream, right? Which is, of course, what most of this story is going to be about, right? And I suppose one of the questions that we'll we'll have to tackle in the discussion episode is, uh, you know, the veracity of the experience of the dream. I mean, you know, I don't I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, right? But this is going to be a dream that is going to seem very real to the narrator. And so, yeah, let's move into chapter three now. So, yeah, the narrator has told us that he fell asleep in his chair, and now he tells us that he actually dreamed of his own suicide. He had intended to shoot himself in the head, but in his dream, he shoots himself in the heart. And he's dead now, but because this is a dream, his consciousness continues on, and he hears his neighbors grieving for him, and he even feels his coffin buried in the ground. But then he isn't really dead, or maybe another way to to put it is that he discovers that there is an afterlife and that he isn't alone. He feels like he is in his buried coffin and water is dripping on his head, and then he's aware that that is not real and that there is some presence with him. And now he finds himself in the darkness of outer space and is moving rapidly towards a green star that he knows is a replica of our very own sun. Uh, And also there's a a planet that is Earth, but also not our Earth. And just as an aside, though, we can certainly take it up. It definitely feels like uh, William O. Hodgson has read this story, and maybe we should have too before we uh, covered the house on the borderland. But... uh, At any rate, that might be as far as the similarities go, at least in terms of the outer space material. But as I said, the narrator is not alone, and he he feels like this presence that is with him is God, though he never uses that word. Uh, At any rate, the voice speaks to him and, and says that now the narrator will see everything. And then the narrator is deposited on this earth, and he's left there without this companion, And I think here is probably just another place where I really should just read the text to you. Uh, This is uh, the last but very long paragraph of chapter three, and it's a description of this earth. And I I said it's a long paragraph, but just to clarify what I mean by that is it's an entire page, but I hope you'll bear with me because it's some beautiful writing. But my companion had already left me. Suddenly, as if quite imperceptibly, I came to stand on this other earth in the bright light of a sunny day, lovely as paradise. I was standing, it seems, on one of those islands which on our earth made up the Greek archipelago, or somewhere on the coast of the mainland adjacent to that archipelago. Oh, everything was exactly as with us, but seemed everywhere to radiate some festivity and a great, holy, and finally attained triumph. The gentle emerald sea splashed softly against the shores and kissed them with love, plain, visible, almost conscious. Tall, beautiful trees stood in all the luxury of their flowering, and their numberless leaves, I was convinced, greeted me with their soft, gentle sound, as if uttering words of love. The grass glittered with bright, fragrant flowers. Flocks of birds flew about in the air, and, fearless of me, landed on my shoulders and arms, joyfully beating me with their dear, fluttering wings. And finally, I got to see and know the people of that happy earth. They came to me themselves— They surrounded me, kissed me. Children of the sun, children of their sun. Oh, how beautiful they were. Never on earth have I seen such beauty in man. Maybe only in our children, in their first years, can one find a remote, though faint, glimmer of that beauty. The eyes of these happy people shone with clear brightness. 
Their faces radiated reason and a sort of consciousness fulfilled to the point of serenity. Yet, they were mirthful faces. A childlike joy sounded in the words and voices of these people. Oh, at once, with the first glance at their faces, I understood everything. Everything! This was the earth undefiled by the fall. The people who lived on it had not sinned. They lived in the same paradise in which, according to the legends of all mankind, our fallen forefathers lived, with the only difference that the whole earth here was everywhere one and the same paradise. These people, laughing joyfully, crowded around me and caressed me. They took me with them, and each of them wished to set me at ease. Oh, they didn't ask me about anything. But it seemed to me as if they already knew everything and wished quickly to drive the torment from my face. You mentioned that you uh, felt as though William Hope Hodgson had read this story. Uh, it doesn't just feel to me as though William Hope Hodgson has read this story, but also that C.S. Lewis has read this story. <laughs> you know, the premise of being taken by God or an angel to an unfallen place, a place where humankind did not sin or transgress, is the exact plot of C.S. Lewis's second novel in the space trilogy called Pierlandra. Of course, you know, in this case, Dostoevsky is not writing hard sci-fi or even like soft sci-fi. This is a story that's much more about a, a spiritual awakening. And the narrator is really concerned with the fact that, or the notion that consciousness goes on beyond death. And the narrator is confronting the idea that he might have to remain himself after he dies, that death itself will not be the transformation that he is hoping for. Uh, you know, as an aside here, and I've, I've kind of hinted at this before, I found the the suicide uh, that begins this chapter really distressing because of what we had seen earlier already uh, with the army wife and her kids that live in these rooms with the, the narrator. I, I can only imagine this story being told from her perspective where she is living in deep fear for herself and her children. She's without any basic societal protections. One of her neighbors is a maniac and the other is depressive and suicidal to the degree that he kills himself in the next room. And now you have got to deal with that with your kids. I mean, this whole business here, the way that Dostoevsky has set this up, uh, speaks not only to the senses of alienation and isolation uh, that we've brought up that the narrator feels uh, from others, that distance from others, but also, I think, to his to his selfishness. Absolutely. And selfishness is, it, well, it's going to be one of the central themes, as we will see when we we pick up in the next chapter. Right. Uh, you know, I also found it really striking and compelling uh, the way that Dostoevsky captured the sense of there being consciousness after death, or maybe I should say like an, an embodied consciousness after death at, an afterlife. It's really difficult to imagine, I think, a, a true end of consciousness if you sit down and think about it. it maybe, you know, you might find it easy to imagine an end to your own consciousness. But I imagine if you're able to do that, you'd find it really difficult to imagine there being absolutely no consciousness carrying on, you know, and that includes the consciousness of others, after your existence ends, even if it's something just like life continuing on Earth. Uh, consciousness is really mysterious in this way, that it's really hard for us to imagine uh, a real end of consciousness. 
it's a really strange property of our own existence. And I think that Dostoevsky is presaging concepts of existentialism in this chapter too. I mean, basically he's suggesting the idea that existence precedes essence, that the world is such as it is because we exist to experience it and categorize it and so on and are therefore responsible for our actions in the world and our maintenance of it. And this is this this narrator's awakening to that idea. Yeah, I find it totally impossible to actually envision the end of myself. Like, you know, I, I understand that the world is going to continue on after I die. And I also understand that I am, like everyone else, going to die. That stuff I all get on an intellectual level. But I can't think of what it would be like for my brain to just to turn off, essentially, my consciousness to turn off. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time trying to do that, but there have been times when I have. And I think, uh, like you, Brandon, I, I just I find that extremely difficult because obviously our own consciousness is how we perceive the world. And it's difficult for us to try to remove ourselves actually from that equation. And it, it, it's cool to see the ways that people try to write something like that. I think Dostoevsky has done kind of a fun and interesting job of that here. Yeah, I think I think Dostoevsky is really interested in the ways in which we try to remove ourselves from that experience, uh, you know, that raw encounter with reality or existence or whatever. We're going to get more of that, uh, you know, as this story goes on. But I just want to point out here that uh, Dostoevsky does point out that the narrator realizes that he's missing some very important ingredients to life that would have made his life more valuable. And that's really that the narrator failed to love others and he had no gratitude. I mean, the narrator claims that he loved, but what he means is that he suffered because of love. And what he means then by love is a little bit unclear. But, uh, you know, right now our narrator is on Earth too, and he's got some experiences to go through there. Yeah, and I think we should definitely just call this Earth Two, and then we can make <laughs> a lot of comic book jokes. <laughs> All right, yeah. So we're in Chapter Four now, and we we get some details of the narrator's existence here on this other Earth, or Earth Two, I guess is we're gonna we're gonna call it, and it is an Edenic place. It's this primitive paradise. The people here have no technology, no civilization. They live in harmony with their natural environment. Uh, they just eat fruit without having to do very much in the way of caring for the plants upon which that fruit grows. Uh, they find clothing and shelter just as easily. There is uh, here, there is childbirth, but there is no lust. Uh, it may even be that there is no sex, but you know, it is the 19th century. It's Russia. So Dostoevsky's writing about this rather euphemistically. And of course, we're reading it then in translation as well. So you know, it could be that there's no sex, but I'm certain that there is no lust is what I'm trying to say here. Uh, there is also no disease or really other type of hardship at all. But most importantly for the narrator, there is no hatred or envy or anguish among these people. They are innocent, and they exude only love. And they spend their days only marginally involved in the material care of their bodies. And so mostly, they engage in adoring one another and just singing loads of songs. And they even end every day with a big song about what they all got up to. And when the narrator tries to explain to them about his world and 
how awful it is. They just give him confused looks. And the narrator digresses here to explain that, of course, he is not still in this place. He has come back to our Earth. That's where he's you know, writing this down. And everyone he has told about this experience has mocked him. Of course, it is impossible to dream with this level of detail, uh, or at least to remember this level of detail from a dream. And so he's either delusional or he is making it all up. That's what everybody says. But the narrator finishes up this digression here with a tease that then is going to propel us into the fifth and final chapter of the story, which is that he tells us that this place was real and uh, that he corrupted all these innocent people. I mean, I mean, what can I even say about this? The narrator was taken to a paradise by either God or an angel or something like that. We saw in the last chapter, though we didn't mention it, that the angel seemed a little sad to be doing this. And now we know why. <laughs> the narrator is the snake in the garden, literally. He is the corrupter. There are, though, some bits of interest here in this chapter. You know, early on when the narrator first meets the second earthers, He's shocked by the fact that they have no science. He says that their, quote, knowledge was deeper and loftier than science. For our science seeks to explain what life is. It aspires to comprehend it in order to teach others how to live. But they know how to live even without science, end quote. And we learn later that this is because these people, in their unfallen state, experience some sort of communion with what the narrator calls the entirety of the universe. And I think it might be better stated, you know, not the entirety of the universe, but the entirety behind the universe, the uncaused cause, maybe. And as a result, these people have no need for progress because they know what it is to live and they know what is needed to live or to flourish. And, and we're really going to dig into this in our discussion. Yeah, it's a real shame, actually. I feel a lot of pity for these people that they're, uh, they're never going to get to try the new type of hamburger at your uh, local fast food place <laughs> or the, the new type of latte that Starbucks has dreamed up. I mean, what is life without constant new stupid stuff? Yeah, there's no stuffed crust pizza on Second Earth. <laughs> yeah, you know? Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> the next thing I want to point out here is the way in which our narrator, in the present as he's telling us this story, lets us know that he's become something of an object of ridicule rather than just merely feeling ridiculous himself because he insists on sharing this dream with others and not only sharing it, but advocating for the vision of it. He, he's trying to get people to realize that life could be as good as the people on earth to have it, but no one on our world buys it. The narrator knows that this dream is true, that it really happened because the dream was not too good to be true. You know, who would have a dream of paradise in which they are the agent of corruption? Yes. As I have talked about uh, on at least a few other podcasts, mostly I think whenever we're talking about Lovecraft and his dreams, I have vivid, vivid nightmares and, and sometimes not nightmares, just regular dreams, but just all the time. But I don't think ever once if I had a dream actually in which I'm the bad guy, but that's exactly what happens here, right? So yeah, we're going to go into chapter five and, and talk about corruption. Now, what has happened here is that the narrator introduced the concept of lying to these people. And he didn't do it intentionally. It's just 
turns out that it's it's really hard for those of us from Earth One uh, not to lie. And this one little introduction then had a cascading effect. So these people eventually discovered sensuality, and therefore they discovered jealousy and cruelty. And then very soon after that, the first blood was shed, and then alliances appeared. They came to no shame, but then they made shame into a virtue. Honor was born as well, and they made banners for their alliances. They began to torment animals, and they developed the idea of property, the idea of possession. And it goes on and on until they develop science. And then they begin to talk about brotherhood and humaneness. They developed crime and then invented justice and even wrote whole books about justice and how to maintain it. And in order to maintain justice, of course, they also invented the guillotine. Having lost their former happiness and believing that state to actually be nothing other than a legend, a state that they never really even had, they wish so much to be innocent and happy again. Yet, the narrator says that he knows that if presented with the possibility of returning to that state, they would actually refuse. And he quotes them here, and so let's just read this. These people tell the narrator, Granted, we're deceitful, wicked, and unjust. We know that, and weep for it, and we torment ourselves over it, and torture and punish ourselves perhaps even more than that merciful judge who will judge us and whose name we do not know. But we have science, and through it we shall again find the truth, but we shall now accept it consciously. Knowledge is higher than feelings. The consciousness of life is higher than life. Science will give us wisdom. Wisdom will discover laws, and knowledge of the laws of happiness is higher than happiness. And this sentiment, uh, this really troubles the narrator, uh, knowing that he did this to them, that he has infected them. And so he demands that they kill him. He demands that they crucify him, and he even shows them how to do it. And he believes that if he is crucified, their sins will be erased, that his crucifixion can redeem them. But they scoff and laugh at him. Uh, they regard him as something of a holy fool. But they also tell him to knock it off or they're going to put him in a madhouse. And this grieves him so much that he wakes up. And this is not the end of the story. It's not even the end of the chapter. But there is a section break here. So let's just pause along with the narrator here before he's going to tell us what happens after he wakes up. You mentioned all these beats in your recap here, in Dostoevsky's, I don't know, like secular conception of history, the honor societies designed to magnify shame and the resultant violence. But he's also, or the narrator is also really digging into religious ideas as a cause of war and strife here too. The narrator touches on the recent development of the building of temples, which is the need to have sacred spaces, places that are set apart from the corruption of the world. He talks about holy men who were stoned for telling people that they've lost their sense of shame. They've become too prideful, in other words. And then also there's a lot of spiritual snake oil salesmen here. They, they've they come along telling people that they can love themselves as much as they want to, even more than they love others. There's, there's the return of selfishness there. And that loving yourself first as much as you can will return 
the world back to its Edenic state and, and, and the unity of humanity. But remember when the narrator came upon this world, he worshiped these people and the people had nothing but love for one another. And worship, of course, is something that demands a cost from us on some level. Uh, you know, the narrator also points out that one of the religions that arose was a cult of non-being that culminated in becoming one with nothingness. Uh, so it's, you know, kind of a weird take on on Buddhism, I guess. But wars were fought over these ideas and wise men violently enforced their own conceptions of of wisdom. And, and put them, you know, upon other people. So, what we're looking at here is not just this crazy, uh, real quick explanation of of world history or something like that, but a real decay of any kind of spiritual healthiness or flourishing. And all of it started with lying. Both forms of decay of both culture and society, and then also spiritual life began with a lie. So in our discussion episode, we're going to have to look at what this means, and we're going to have to deal with two pretty big theological concepts that Dostoevsky is leaning into here for his exploration of like world history and moral history. But I really want to note that the concept of nothingness is fairly important to one of the theological ideas that we'll be looking at in our discussion. So, you know, I just want us to keep that in mind here too. Yeah, there's a, a ton packed into this this bit of short fiction here. I mean, this is this is so dense, and I'm I'm excited to get to the discussion episode. So uh, maybe I'll I'll just move us on here to the end of the story so that we can uh, we can get to that. So yeah, the the narrator wakes up and he's you know back here in you know his waking world of of Earth One, and what he does in response to this dream is determined to take up preaching. He just wants to tell people about his experience, and he wants to use this experience, this this dream, as a guide for bringing humanity to a similar state of innocence as he encountered on Earth 2. And so, in short, he's, he's going to preach a utopian vision to anyone who will listen. He knows it will be tough, but he is going to do it nonetheless. And then he finishes the story with this line, And I found that little girl, and I'll go, I'll go. All right. We've got redemption here. You know, uh, somewhat importantly, the narrator's belief has changed uh, and he no longer believes that evil is the default state of humanity. The narrator is no longer, in other words, like a, a true cynic. And even though he knows that over time in the new mission he has to preach this utopia, even though he knows he might wander off course, he has this living image, this new life inside of him that will always help him return to the right path, to the right way when he does wander. He's also discovered a new spiritual truth that one must love others as themselves. It's brand new. You know, it's brand no no one's really talked about this before. He also realizes that the concepts that need to be fought you know, fought off are those concepts that allow us to abstract ourselves from ourselves, from the right action we need to take in the world. And he gives us examples of these, like 
you know, we, we should not, not buy into the concept that our consciousness of life is higher than life or that the knowledge of the laws of happiness are higher than happiness itself. And, you know, I think here he means the experience of happiness. And so with all this new knowledge, our narrator is free now to help the, the girl from the street and her mother. So yeah, that's the story here. And as I hinted at in our discussion episode, we'll be talking theology and also lots of other stuff too. And, you know, I'm convinced, Glenn, you have some thoughts about how the narrator has conceived of world history here, but uh, <laughs> that's going to be our next episode. And so that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. Before we leave this episode behind, let me say thank you once again to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this set of episodes. I think you can hear in our voice the delight at reading this story and talking about it. And yes, Brandon, I am very excited to get a chance to talk about uh, 19th century conceptions of teleological history. Uh, Perhaps we'll talk Hegel. Perhaps we'll talk some Marx. uh, We'll see. Uh, All of that will be next time, though, when we are back with a discussion of this story. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.